Have you ever reached a point in your life that you would consider rock bottom? What did you do about it? Did you know that even at rock bottom you have a choice? You can be resilient or you can find an even lower rock bottom. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 78 as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host Mark Hoffman and today I'm joined by NHL analyst and author of the new book Down and Back, Justin Bourne. Justin and I talk about how alcohol went from being something he casually enjoyed to something he had to have. He explains that as a situation deteriorates, it's a good idea to think about what comes next if you stay on your current path. And Justin explains why sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. The Resilient Journey is now ad-free, so let's give some love to the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the podcast. Justin, I'm honored to have you on the podcast, man. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for your book, Down and Back. Uh, Also, thank you for the honesty and the vulnerability that you displayed in that book. Let's start by having you introduce yourself to the audience, please. Yeah, no problem. Um, Yeah, Justin Bourne, my... uh... I think most people probably know uh, my dad's story, having uh, won Stanley Cups with the New York Islanders. And obviously, there's no way to grow up in that world without that becoming a part of your story. So that is a part of my beginning. Um, you know, I, I played some junior hockey myself. And uh, as my dad moved on, my parents separated. And he went to coach. Um, I kind of started my own hockey journey. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily trying to follow in his footsteps, but uh, just chasing a sport that I really love. So I went to Alaska, got a university scholarship there, um, and then spent a few years trying to figure it out, right? You know, college, just played some minor pro hockey, experiment a little bit with uh, fun stuff and being single and all that and, to, and figure out what you can handle and what you like. And, um, you know, from there, I I met my my now wife, Brianna, Brianna Bourne, now Brianna Gillies at the time, Clark Gillies' daughter. And uh, when hockey ended for me, which was partially due to a slap shot to the face, I was kind of left to figure out life after hockey. And as you know, if you even that quick snippet of my life going from time with my dad and hockey and my own hockey, hockey had been my life. So figuring out what was to come next uh, wasn't easy. I managed to stay in the game through media, but the lifestyle after the game, I, I kind of wasn't able to keep uh keep reins on, on the things that I had, you know, really the demons on alcoholism and, um, you know, that really changed my life and put my, the life I had built in jeopardy, um, eventually got sober, spent some time in rehab, wrote a book. (laughs) You know, I know that's a gross simplification of (laughs) of the story, but, um, you know, here I am a life in hockey and a life battling alcohol. And you're a TV analyst now. And you talked about the media there a little bit. I read the book, the biggest challenge I had heading into the podcast was narrowing it down from the 800 or so questions that I wanted to ask you. Um, And we're going to get through the journey. We're going to go down and then we're going to go back. Um, And, and when I saw you on TV, I saw you on Tim and friends back in February, the day that the book was released, I knew I needed to have you on the show because down and back is the essence of resilience. I mean, that's, That's really what it is. But before we get to that journey, I want to ask you something, and it's a little bit philosophical, and I promise this will be the hardest question of the whole episode. Yeah. yeah. But when you were playing junior hockey, so you're probably 18-ish, somewhere in that that time frame, 
the the team that you played with sort of had this Vince Lombardi quote uh, all over the wall. And it uh, was very, very prominent, I think, on your team. So let me just share the quote. It says that any man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment of all that he holds dear, is that moment when he has worked his heart out for a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle, victorious. Now, that's a very obsessive uh, mentality. A little bit later in that same chapter, you talk about the fact that everybody has the opportunity to make some bad choices in life. Yeah. So I'd like to get you to reconcile the obsessive nature of that Vince Lombardi quote with the benefit that it was actually providing you by not allowing you to have the time to make some of those bad choices. Yeah, that's a, uh, first off, I love questions like this. I, you know, I think, you know, I'm a psychology major myself and I think it, it is profoundly interesting to try to figure out why we are the way we are. You know, I would say that in my own career, one of the things that I lacked compared to the people who ended up being better players than me was that obsessive nature. Like when I hear, um, you know, Larry Bird stories, guy wouldn't leave the gym till he had a hundred free throws in a row. Like, what do you mean a hundred? Like you hit 97 and you started over like that. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, that's beyond practice. Like that is obsession. And you hear it about Crosby or McDavid or a lot of these guys who couldn't let that go until they mastered something. Hockey was something I did for me. And I used to get frustrated by hockey because it limited me from experiencing the world. And I was unique in that hockey culture then with that attitude. I would say most people followed that Lombardi quote to the letter that this was what we were meant to do. And so I was kind of thrust into this environment where that quote didn't seem obsessive. It just seemed like the way we were supposed to behave. Mm. And so to your point, it did keep me on track in that you know, we, uh, my, you know, we had gym time scheduled and we traveled and we played and we practiced and we had video sessions. And, you know, so I was, my time was used up by that accepted obsession, but I resented it and wanted to rebel against it and never really did rebel against it. But I was, you know, a lot of people when their career ends, people are like, how did you move on? And I even mentioned earlier that trying to figure out what, what was next was hard. I was also excited by the opportunity to not be consumed by hockey. And so I think, you know, maybe what you're leading towards a little bit is, is the idea of, you know, that obsession and that mentality maybe contributing to alcoholism and that, you know, becoming a singularly focused person at times. And I, I don't know if that's the idea at all, but for me, it's almost like the alcohol was an escape from the obsession for me and allowed me to do something else and do what I wanted. I felt really controlled by the collective obsession by hockey when I didn't necessarily have it myself. Yeah, that's really interesting because in the corporate world, we talk so much about work-life balance and we know, we all know people who are completely obsessed with whatever it is that they do and Sometimes I can fall into that trap. And it's interesting to to hear you talk a little bit about that balance or the, the fact that alcohol was an escape from that obsession. That's really interesting. It's a nice segue really to talking about the down part of your journey. You describe it, New Year's Eve, 2003, starting as a gentle ripple, not a tidal wave. So talk about that progression and how drinking 
went from something that you casually enjoy to something that you described as something you literally had to have. Yeah. Yeah. That, that New Year's Eve was just, you know, I, I had, my mom was divorced. You know, my dad left when we were, I don't know, eight, I was eight or nine or something. Um, you know, my brother was in a wheelchair and had many surgeries over the years, even after dad left, you know, we were in and out of hospitals. And I feel like the last thing I ever wanted to be was an additional burden on mm. my mom, who was, you know, really a saint. She, you know, she didn't sit down. I don't remember seeing my mom sit down. She just worked, you know, she had a full-time job, um, driving me around, taking care of my brother. And so part of my hesitancy with alcohol when I was younger was that I just didn't want it to get away from me and make mistakes and be a problem. Going away to university, I was on my own. I was, you know, hundreds of miles from home. I felt like if I messed up, I was, I, I could, she wouldn't hear about it. I could kind of deal with it myself a little. And it's funny, even then that I was concerned about it getting away from me, but you know, the, I would say I had had drinks over the years, you know, a beer at a party or whatever, and it never did anything for me. But in that safe environment on that new year's Eve with my great college roommates, and you know, we had a couple of Jack and Cokes. I was just like, I really enjoyed that. You know, like that's something I could see me being a part of with these guys every weekend. Why not? We had so much fun. That was awesome. Let's do it again next weekend. And you know, this is why I believe there's such a biological component and genetic component to alcoholism, because it like, it flipped a switch in me in a way that like, well, yeah, it was fun on the weekend. We don't have to wait to the weekend. We could do it on Tuesday. Tuesday's fine. It's far enough from the games. And like, immediately, I just, I wanted to drink all the time. And I didn't drink all the time. I kept it to reasonable amounts, I think, uh, compared to college hockey players. But it was clear by my senior year that I thought about it more than other people and wanted to drink more than other people. And, you know, when the summers came around, I really didn't stop for a month or two after the season. And that to me is when I think my senior year was the first time I was like, I seem to like this more than other people. And that could be problematic. Wow. That's interesting. I know you said uh, a quote in the book that jumped out at me because I like ice cream too. You said you went from liking alcohol the way people like ice cream. I don't think about it necessarily, but while I'm doing it, I, I enjoy it yeah. to it becoming a, a real need. And was, was that a, a slow progression or was it something that was like a slippery slope? Yeah. Yeah. I love that comparison. Cause uh, you know, it's funny when I see, I even just the other day on Saturday night, I went out with a couple of guy friends. We went to a stand-up comedy show and watched the Leafs game before. And one of my buddies had a few beers at dinner. And then we got to the show and he was just like, oh, I'm good. Like, I don't need to have another one or whatever. And I was just like, what? Like, I couldn't <laughs> even comprehend that he had started drinking. It was a Saturday night. We were out and then he just didn't want to continue. Like, those are the events where I came home just at my very worst because I, I, once I started, I, I couldn't stop. And, you know, that's not the case of ice cream. I can finish my ice cream cone and go, oh, that was satisfying. I got it. You know, I got what I wanted out of that. And in right. fact, I, I feel a little guilty for having had it. Whereas alcohol, you know, the, the obsession is immediately just like, I can't even enjoy the drink I'm having if I don't know that I'm going to get to have another, wow. you know, like it's, it's just, it's really tough to explain in, in how much it is a, a true, as I mentioned, I, I think it's biological. It's just the way I'm wired that I, my, my brain handled alcohol differently than other people. That comparison and that description that you just did might be very helpful to people who are listening to this because uh, they, they might find themselves in a similar situation. Yeah. 
You use the term low bottom alcoholic. So talk about what that means and describe a little bit about what rock bottom was like for you, because I don't think it's the same for everybody. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, to me, it's the most important message I want to come from the book is that, you know, a lot of people think, okay, this person's an alcoholic and then they're going to hit rock bottom and then it's going to be time to sort it out. And, and a lot of people who know they're alcoholics are kind of waiting for that rock bottom. And they carry on until the, this awful event. But, you know, I've been in that room in rehab with 30 other guys and, you, and, you know, they ask the question, what was your rock bottom? And, you know, tell us about rock bottom. And almost everyone says, well, here's what happened. And I thought that was my rock bottom. I got sober for two months and then I went back out and I started drinking again. Hmm. And then this 10 times worse thing happened. Wow. And then I thought that was rock bottom and I went back out. And then this other even more awful thing happened. And so... The reality is, and that's one thing that I took from my time in treatment, which I'm so grateful for, was that you get to pick your bottom. There's always a lower bottom out there waiting for you if you continue to live the way I was living. Mm. Um, and so for me, what was rock bottom was the verge of losing it all. Um, you know, my wife, you know, we had a two and a half year old at the time I went to treatment. My wife, you know, not letting me come home you know, going to stay in a hotel, my, you know, talking about moving back to Long Island with our son, um, you know, my work question, you know, making more and more calls about, you know, where is this assignment or this article and the quality declining? Like I was on the verge of losing everything. And so, you know, I used to sit there at, you know, dial a bottle would deliver at about 9.30 a.m., and uh, I would Uber Eats McDonald's breakfast and vodka and, uh, and, and beer. And I would sit there and eat that. And I'd have what I would call my shame bag of just like empties and fast food wrappers. And, you know, that to me was like, I didn't get a DUI or divorced or fired or go to jail or kill anyone, but I, it was coming. And so, you know, having the support of my wife to say, you know, when after an incident, like, do you need help? And having the ability to say yes at that time, and then deciding that I know what comes next if I stay on that path. I know what it looks like. And maybe that's having divorce in my own family. I've, I've been able to see what it does, but I didn't want that for my family. And so my low bottom was making the choice that that was my rock bottom instead of waiting for something that forces me. Uh, to, to change. You've always been self-aware and you talk about that in the book. And I think that that helped you sort of be able to project where this was headed. But before you went to rehab, four years before you went to rehab, you said you knew you were an alcoholic, but you really liked drinking and you didn't yeah. not want to be an alcoholic. What you were hoping for was status quo. Yeah. So talk about why that's not a good strategy. Yeah. Um, you know, that's uh, arrogance. That's what that is. They call that arrogance where I believed I could outsmart alcoholism. Oh, and wow. I, I knew I was an alcoholic, but I really thought that I could trick everyone and I could manage it in a way that I would have that for myself and no one else would see, you know, that I would just be sneaking vodka when my wife went to bed and who's that harming? And I would have, you know, six beers when I've told her I had three at the bar and who's that hurting? And you know, there was my alcoholism was going to be for me. I, I just, it doesn't work. It does not work. If you want to have a meaningful life with connections, you're hiding, 
you feel, you know, and this is, um, you know, just my own experience. I shouldn't say you, it's, I was hiding. I felt like a slinky, dishonest liar. I didn't have, and, and that, you know what that does to a person when you, you know, that you, you feel fraudulent, that you're representing yourself dishonestly. I just, it, I really hated the person I was and that's not, not a fun way to live either. So, you know, doing the, I always resisted just doing the, the things that I knew were right for some reason until I learned the lesson myself. Tell you know, people could tell me, but I had to see it for myself. And I saw what trying to outsmart alcoholism did. And they, there are no winners in the end. Well, I think that's a common thing. People will tell you, you have a problem, but until you admit it to yourself, I think uh, that's probably, well, they say that's the first step, I believe. Yeah. Uh, you've mentioned your wife, you mentioned uh, your son uh, already. Uh, and as we think about now the resilient part of this, the we've talked about the down, now let's talk about the end back part of the story. I, I get the sense that the driving factor here was your family. Uh, you said this in the book, you put it in the dedication that I will live with the care of those closest to me in my heart. So talk about them as your motivation here. Well, that's it. You know, like, you know, wh what else is there in life to me? It's just like, in, unless it's that connection with other people, and, and it doesn't have to be for everyone that that means a husband, a wife, a son, and a daughter. Like for some people, their friends or their family, you know, whatever their community is. But, you know, for me, it was finding something more meaningful than myself and caring about caring about something more than myself. And for me, it, it is that family. And I just can't imagine living a life where, you know, my mom has shown the support to me she has. And I chose to keep drinking rather than trying to make her proud, you know, with what she's done. And, you know, where I chose to keep drinking rather than, you know, be home when my son gets home from, you know, camp and hearing about his day. And we have a two and a half year old, almost three year old daughter now too. And, you know, that, that wouldn't have happened if I don't make that change. And, you know, I, people have different priorities and I don't hold it against anyone. If their priorities aren't family, it, it can be whatever it is for you is, is important. But to me, I just, I know that in my later years, when I'm 70, when I'm 80, whatever, the, the things that will have mattered to me is, is having people around me who care about me, who love me, and, and I care about them and love them. Um, you know, I mentioned the way I'm wired. That's the way I'm wired. And that, that's the most motivating thing in life to me. So you went to rehab once. Is that normal? Or do people typically need to go multiple times? I believe you said in the story that your dad had to go two or three times, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Dad went three times. I don't know. You know, I <laughs> did. I don't know what the average amount of times would be, but you're correct in that one is, is not always enough. My best buddy I made from treatment there, who I just had coffee with last week, um, he got sober at the one we went to as well. That was his sixth rehab. Wow. Um, you know, I'm in a step group, so we all have the same sponsor and we work through the steps. The, there's four of us and, and him, so there's five. Um, but what, yeah, one of the guys in our group I think over the course of his life went to almost a dozen before it took for him, you know, like it, it, you know, it differs. And I think one of the things I had going for me, I had a number of things going for me is that I had a tremendous support system to come out to, you know, who my wife stopped drinking after I got out of treatment for two years. 
which is an insane thing. She loved drinking. You know, we went to bars all the time together and she stopped drinking for two years. Um, so I had that tremendous support. The other thing that I think is a sneaky biological factor is like, I didn't drink till I was 21. And I had the opportunity to have a fully formed brain. I, you know, my brain, I didn't do drugs or drink and I was able to sort of come of age in a good place. A lot of people who are in those rooms and in rehab started at 11, 12 years old. And there are some awful things, whether it's an assault or a family, you know, abuse of some manner. And for them, it's not just fixing the drinking. It's a bigger thing. So I was fortunate that I had a fully functional brain and a pretty stable life. And I, if I failed, it was on me. I think a lot of people were not as fortunate as I was in the circumstances I was handed. Yeah, you talked about that as far as uh, even the ability to go to rehab, you know, at all and to be able to uh, afford that. Yeah. So it's not as easy as flipping a switch and say, okay, everything's going to be fixed now. What would you say to someone who has been to rehab, but has, you know, relapsed and uh, maybe doesn't feel so good about themselves? What encouragement would you give them? Yeah, you know, a lot of the things you hear in um, in the program is that relapse is a lot of people's part of people's recovery. It's a part of their story um, and what they need to go to to where they're they're trying to get. You know, I can't judge other people whose circumstances that I you know that are maybe far more challenging than me. But I think the idea that only you can decide when it's enough and that mm. the desperation you feel in the worst of it is something to hang on to and to remember what it was like. And that's one of the slogans and, and to be like, I am sober now because I, God, I don't ever want to be there again. I don't ever want to feel like that. So those moments that feel awful and hurt most can be kind of at the core of what keeps you strong after. And it's not something to try to block out of your mind. It's something to hang on to. Yeah. A lot of times uh, when circumstances change, we look at things differently and uh, it's always good to remember that worst case scenario, whether it's projected worst case like you did, or whether it was something that somebody actually went through. Um, I appreciate that. That's uh, giving hope and and guidance to other people. You said something else in the book that I found really interesting, and I find it kind of resilient by nature. You said that when you sit in front of a problem that there's no way to get around, you don't spend any time thinking about it. Because as you said, you got to do what you got to do. So talk about your own resilience and that approach and how it helped you navigate through this. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I think this is a, first off, I love the podcast here that you're doing and the topic, the theme. I think it's one that's going to be even more important as children kind of grow up in households that are, I don't want to say coddled, but I think, you know, maybe people, kids are more dependent now on parents and maybe less resilient as a result. Um, but it's funny. And it's something that I just kind of learned about myself along the way that when, when I had no choice in a bad thing happening, you know, not a bad thing. It, it could be as simple as like, I really don't want to work out today, but it's a team workout. I know I can't skip it or I'm going to get cut. You know, I can't, when I have no choice, I just do it. And I stop thinking about it and I don't worry about it because what are, what sense is it to waste time fixating and, you know, you know, creating the wreckage of the future where you project these awful things that might happen rather than just doing it, just get it over with and do it. And so for me, it's like, you know, when my 
face, you know, I took a slap shot to the face and my jaw was in pieces. And I mentioned this in the book. I remember being face down and running my tongue over my teeth and they're all over my mouth. And I remember going, okay, like just being like, okay, like I know what comes next here and it isn't fun, but okay, let's get to the doctor. Let's, okay. <laughs> you know, like this is not one you can like weasel your way around or anything. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know how I came across that. Maybe it is part of the hockey upbringing and seeing sometimes you just, you know, got to fight someone you don't want to fight or whatever it is, but um, it's, it's worked for me. I don't know if it would work for everyone. There's value in it because for me, my um, worst case scenario was financial coming out of a divorce. And what, what that's led me to is uh, now that I've recovered from that, I I'm not phased by having a slight dip in my bank account anymore right. because I've experienced way, way worse, yeah. <laughs> way worse. Yeah. All right. No, that's, I mean, I think that's, that's so, it's so important And this, you know, I, I am a parent of young kids and you want to protect them from everything, but unless you've experienced some crap that you've got through and you can say to yourself, I handled that, right. you know, the, the hardest things you handle, I really think equip you for, for the next things. I love that because you can remind yourself, I've been through worse. I can get through this one too. A hundred percent. Yeah. I hated public speaking, but I, you know, I did one thing that was very hard for me, this one event. And then everything after that, I was like, I got through that. And then, you know, I built up this portfolio of things I had done and then I can, I had more to fall back on that. I know I've been through it. So sometimes you just got to plow ahead. So just out of curiosity, which is harder or neither hard for you anymore public speaking in a room full of people or going on Sportsnet and doing a hockey analysis on tv oh i i still don't like public speaking very much and I, it's something i am working on because with the book there will be some opportunity to speak but i used to drop college courses that involved the presentation like mm. I remember I was a captain of our college team and they asked me to go up and just thank the booster club. at like the year end banquet. And I just literally said no. And I remember my coach, Dave Shyak going, you're going to have to do this eventually. And I remember I said, counterpoint, no, I won't. <laughs> you know? like, I was just like, I'm going to avoid this for my entire life. And here I am. I just like wish I had started sooner to make it easier on myself. All right, here, here we are. I'm going to challenge you then. You, Put yourself back into the question we just went through. You're sitting in front of a problem. There's no way around it. You have to do public speaking. You got to do what you got to do, man. I love it. No, and that's it. I love it. That's it. So just do it. Just stand up there, say the words. If you, a couple of beads of sweat come out or you stumble, it is what it is. You know, it's it'll be all right. One quote that I heard a long time ago that I really like is, speak the truth even if your voice trembles. Love and yeah, there's there's nothing wrong with that. You have a great story. Thank you for doing this. Tell people how they can connect with you and where they can get a copy of Down and Back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at JT Born on Twitter and at JT Born underscore SN on Instagram, uh, both best bets. And then, yeah, the book is, I think I'm supposed to say, available everywhere. Good books are sold. So, you know, <laughs> Chapters, Indigo, Barnes & Noble, your local store. It should be there. Listen, it's a great read. You don't have to be a hockey fan to read it. Um, what you have to be is a fan of uh, good human nature stories, a fan of resilience. Uh, highly recommend the book. It's a it's a good read. And um, like I told you in our pre-chat before we started, I've been looking forward to this uh, since you said yes. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Yay. 
Hey, thanks for having me on. I love the topic. You're doing great work. I want to thank Justin Bourne for being my guest this week on the podcast and for being so open and vulnerable in his book, Down and Back. And I would encourage you to look for that in better bookstores. A big thank you, as always, to the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the Resilient Journey podcast. The conversation shifts to risk communications next week. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.